Bitcoin is, to your point, they can only make or they can only mine 21 million. That's it. That the government can't increase the supply of the base layer. Uh, that that's a 100% certainty. So uh, I think, and correct if I'm wrong, but that would be your argument as to why we will see consumer price deflation if we were on a Bitcoin standard, because the government can't print money, you can't create more of the base layer, and therefore, what we have seen throughout humanity is entrepreneurs going out there and trying to create efficiencies and sell things at a cheaper price and therefore naturally with productivity gains you're going to see prices go down further and further and further just like we saw in the 1800s all right welcome back to the coinbase podcast if you are new here my name is luke and as you could tell by that short and sharp little introduction i recently had the pleasure of sitting down with the one and the only george gammon for anyone who doesn't know george he has a half a million subscribers over on YouTube. He recently had a very interesting debate with the one and the only Giga Chad, the Michael Saylor. And uh, obviously, George has some very interesting opinions about Bitcoin and whether we could actually go through hyper-Bitcoinization and whether it will work. So I had the opportunity to have a little bit of an impromptu chat with George. Uh, we didn't actually know it was going to be an interview, so you could kind of tell with the dialogue here. George, myself, and George's research assistant, Josh, just got on a Zoom call and uh, we didn't really know it was going to be an interview. So we were just kind of chatting back and forwards, debating different ideas around Bitcoin. And it was, uh, thankfully enough, it was recorded. So I thought, hey, I have to post this on the YouTube channel. There's lots of very, very interesting rabbit holes we explore in this one. We obviously talk about whether money printing actually causes inflation or not. We also talk about if we do hypothetically move to a Bitcoin standard, will that shrink the size of government? And we also talk about digital nomadism and the sovereign individual thesis. George, myself, and Josh, who is only 20 years old, we all kind of live that sovereign individual playbook. We all move around the world. And before we get into that unfiltered debate with George Gammon, I just wanted to quickly let you guys know that you can get 10% off your tickets for the 2023 Bitcoin Miami conference if you use a promo code COINBEAST. That is all one word, very easy to spell. Links to that is in the show description. And if you also want a new Bitcoin-only hardware wallet, highly recommend you check out the Foundation Passport hardware wallet. You can get $10 off that puppy if you use promo code Beast. And of course, check out Coinbeast Connect if you want to jump on a one-on-one video call with Bitcoin Pro that can help you out, whether it be for tax structuring purposes, setting up a Bitcoin mining operation, running a Bitcoin node, or any technical issues that you may have. Highly recommend you check out Coinbase Connect. Without further ado, let's get into this chat with George Gammon and his little research assistant, Josh. I'd be curious to get your view on this. Is if we move to a, let's say, a Bitcoin standard where Bitcoin is just the only money, so basically uh, takes the place of the dollar right now in the United States, under that system, what do you have a, a guess as to what government spending would be as a percentage of GDP? Or maybe a better way to say that would be government revenue or you know the revenue they're collecting as a percentage of GDP. Going back, just to give you some, some context there, to the 1950s, regardless of the, the rate of income taxes and whatnot, you usually see about 18% of GDP that's being collected by the federal government in the form of taxes. So I, I would, it, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. I would assume that you would say, okay, well, there will probably be a form of, uh, uh, of tax 
even if we're on a Bitcoin standard for the federal government, uh, you'd have to pay in Bitcoin. But it, it might be lower, or it might be higher. What, what were your thoughts there? Uh, there's many thoughts. Uh, it's a great question. Uh, so I think firstly, I think Bitcoin's going to constrain government spending. So I think if a government's running a deficit, um, all of a sudden they're draining their finite Bitcoin reserves and there's no bailouts in Bitcoin. So I think spending would have to be lower. Um, and then secondly, I think um, to the point about uh, what was the second point you raised there, George? Well, really, that was the main point. If, if uh, we were on a Bitcoin standard, what would you say the government revenues as a percentage of GDP would be? Uh, understanding that going back the last, you know, call it 70 years, they've hovered right about 18%, regardless of where the highest marginal tax rate is. Yeah, so I think government spending is going to be lower. And then if we do hypothetically end up on a Bitcoin standard, I think that opens up an entire another rabbit hole. I think governments are going to look different. I think you could see some sort of fracturing in the nation state and you could see like the city state kind of model with governments. Um, so, yes, there's still going to be taxes. But I think um, instead of actual explicit taxes, it's going to be different. It's going to be more like a, a contract where you enter a contract with your city state or your smaller government and you say, OK, these are the agreed upon terms that I'm willing to uh, pay this yearly contract, let's say it's $3,000 to live at this city state. Um, so that's a whole nother rabbit hole. But I think to answer the question, I think government spending is going to be constrained on a Bitcoin standard. What are the components of Bitcoin that would allow us to, to, to get into that world where, where we've got a lot more control over government and maybe at a local level or federal level, state level, uh, if that even exists, we're able to say, hey, uh, you need, let's go into a contract. So if you don't abide by this contract, I can simply take back the Bitcoin and then you're, you're defunded. So I've got some sort of, uh, we'll call it leverage there. What, what, um, what uh, well, I guess that's what, what components of Bitcoin allow society to do that? Yeah, so there's two things. Um, I think firstly, it's the transparency on the blockchain. I run a node for, you know, I can do it for $50 on an old laptop and I can see every single Bitcoin transaction that's taken place over the past 13 years. So I can track everything. So the transparency, that's the first point. I think secondly is the ease of self-custody in Bitcoin. So I've listened to uh, yours and Snyder's debate about um, why we've never seen an um, inelastic form of money over the past 5,000 years. Somebody's always been able to monopolize gold and co-opt the monetary supply for their own benefit. And I, I think the biggest reason is because gold simply doesn't scale and it's very difficult to take self-custody and it's not divisible. So Bitcoin has the transparency, but it also has uh, much easier requirements for somebody to be able to actually take self-custody of their Bitcoin. Why haven't we seen full reserve? Uh, so Bitcoin's not full reserve right now. Bitcoin's uh, fractionally reserved. As so you would be it. someone that you'd be a, a Bitcoin advocate that would be in the camp that if we do go to a Bitcoin standard, we will most likely see a fractional reserve type of system might not be banks, but large pools of money and that will offer a higher interest rate to those uh, customers if they allow their Bitcoin to be uh, uh, levered up as far as paper claims, IOUs. And then the market will actually accept those IOUs uh, just like they would the underlying base layer. I think they would initially. 
So I think there'd be a transitionary process. I think as you slowly start to enter the Bitcoin standard in say the first couple of decades, um, you're going to watch like, I think it's going to look like an eight an 1800s uh, free banking kind of era where you're going to have these mm. banks who are, you know, taking custody of the Bitcoin for people and they're going to be lending out paper receipts. So I think you're going to be under some form of fractional reserve. But as you see bank failures, like our good friend uh, Sam Bankman-Fried with FTX or Celsius or BlockFi, as all of these exchanges go bankrupt, you're going to see a bank run. And I think um, the eventual, after, say, the first two, three, four decades of a Bitcoin standard, I think um, that you're probably going to have some form of full reserve um, form of money for the first time in 5,000 years, just because it's so easy to take self-custody. So do you think, but but again, I don't know that the self-custody is the same question or the probabilities of self-custody impacts the probabilities of full and fractional reserve. Because you're, you're, I think your argument there with full custody, going back to the 1800s, is that you really couldn't store, if you had a lot of it, you couldn't store your gold just in your back pocket or your backyard, so you'd have to give it to the bank. Um, I get that. And then you'd get IOUs, which were actually more convenient to use in the real world. We'll call them paper banknotes. Uh, but then to, to me, that doesn't explain why the free market didn't gravitate to a full reserve system and it gravitated to a fractional reserve system. You see, I don't know that the self-custody component uh, is applicable, or maybe I'm just not seeing why, to that a full reserve, fractional reserve. And then uh, is it your opinion that if we would not have had the Federal Reserve, that we would have evolved from this fractional reserve system of free banking in the 1800s to a full reserve system, maybe in the 1900s? Jesus, some good questions. Um, look, I don't think so. I think, so the 1800s and the 1900s was kind of a different era. So the globe wasn't connected, not just in terms of monetarily, but there was no internet, there was no smartphone, um, any of those technologies. So I think okay. it was a necessary requirement to have some sort of uh, fractional reserve banking that enabled globalization and interconnectedness. But now today we are globally interconnected. So I, I see um, I see the need for fractional reserve banking lower. And just the fact you have this globally interconnected digital age that's sharing information all around the world, I think people are going to learn about fiat money and why we shouldn't be using fractional reserve banking just because I can zip a 60-second one of your videos over to someone in Nigeria or Venezuela or Iran Um near instantly free we have like the free flow of information so i think um, the need for fractional reserve banking to kind of globalize the world isn't there anymore i'm not sure okay. if that answered the question no no no, it's no, no this is great this is really good so going back to the government revenue as a percentage of gdp that would be lower most likely um, right now we're at 18 percent. Where, where do you see that coming in? And, and again, I'll give you some context here prior to, um, uh, boy, prior to the federal reserve, let's say in the 1800s, uh, free banking, I would guess it was around 3% uh, as far as the, the federal tax revenue as a percentage of GDP. So if that's our, where we were under a strict gold standard and free banking, um, and now we're at uh, you know 18%. Where do you think we would be uh, with a Bitcoin standard? 
Okay, I understand your question now. I, I didn't understand it the first time you asked it. Sorry, I, okay, I get it no now. Problem. Um, so I think it is going to be, <laughs> I think it is going to be much closer to say a three percent. And it's uh, just because now we have this globally interconnected world. I see more and more jobs moving digital. Um, mm -hmm. And like, if you're a digital nomad and if you're getting slugged like thirty percent taxes, like I was in Australia. Eventually, people are just not going to have that. Like, I'm not going to pay 30% taxes to be locked inside my prison room for six months a year because the government tells me there's a virus. I'm not going to have that. I'm going to move to El Salvador with a 0% taxes. So I see, like, on this, I think Bitcoin is going to, it's not going to change everything, but it's going to change a lot of the incentives around government. So I see governments are going to actually going to have to change um, the way they treat uh, citizens instead of uh, citizens just being like tax cows that get milked for the government, they're going to actually have to start treating us uh, like customers. And I see governments all around the world trying to compete for intellectual capital and the smartest minds around the world by lowering their tax rates. So I'm not sure how long that takes. Could be decades. Could be, might not happen in my lifetime. But I see maybe in 50 to 60 years, I think uh, tax revenue as a percentage of GDP is going to be much lower. It's going to be like 2 3%. But then again, like GDP is a flawed metric uh, as well. Like, yeah, just so that's using another... that, just kind of trying to compare yeah. apples to apples. Um, yeah, so I, I think that's interesting. I guess I can see that for sure, that people will move. Um, where I hesitate with a large number of people moving is the fact that right now, as an American citizen, you can pay 0% tax in Puerto Rico. Yeah. And there are very few people, that there are a lot, but but relatively speaking, there hasn't been that many people moved as far as when you look at the percentage or the numbers of people in the United States, right? You take a percentage of that. So, uh, and, and that's available to us right now where we could go from 40% right over to basically zero and it's it's not that far of a flight and you're right there on the ocean in the caribbean it's another thing when you've got a wife and you're trying to convince her you know what i mean or, or, or yeah. the kids or something like that but i do think that that definitely could put some downward pressure i agree with you now on the other side of the coin though i i would say that there could be could be a way for the government to collect more if they went from a, an income tax more to a transactional tax, uh, mm -hmm. such as a sales tax, because instead of trying to find the money, you know, wherever it is from all the, the American citizens, they could just take it directly from the business at each point of sale. So they're, they're not having to go scramble for it. It's just they have, they have every merchant that would have a, a, a machine that would somehow be connected to this ledger system that you're referring to. So when I go spend my $5 to buy the Starbucks, there's going to be a dime of that a Bitcoin transaction that will go directly to, to the government and they can track that. Uh, you know, if, they, if the business doesn't want to do that, they just don't get a business license. So it, how, how do you see that playing out? Yeah, 100%. So just, just to address the previous point, um, I, I think it's going to take decades um, before we see that interstate migration. Like we're seeing yeah. the early signs of people leaving New York and California yeah, um, yeah. to places like Florida and Texas. But like you say, it's as a percentage, it's tiny. So I think it's going to take decades. And as the governments have become more and more bankrupt, like we know they are, governments all around the world today have breached that 130% debt to GDP ratio, many mm -hmm. of them anyway. They're going to, as, as a government is more bankrupt, they'll become more tyrannical. So I think 
people will it's going to take many decades for that interstate migration shift to happen but yeah. um it, it's it's going to be a long process and how, how the, what you get, how confident what is your confidence level that we would see lower revenue going to the federal government than 18%. Is that, would you have a, like a 90% confidence that that's how it would play out? Do you have a 50% confidence? Uh, what, what would your confidence level be? On a multi-decade time frame, probably something like 60 to 70% confidence. Okay. okay. Again, nobody knows what a Bitcoin standard is going to look like. Right. I, I have no clue. I, right. I think it's going to look different, but. Do you think that if we were on a Bitcoin standard, we would see consumer price deflation? Uh, yes, enormous consumer price deflation. Um, and then to address that other point you made that I, I, I left um, about the sales tax, um, I think that's exactly what you're going to see. Because mm -hmm. on a Bitcoin standard, um, I could be working for you, George, um, here in El Salvador, and you could be paying me Bitcoin privately, anonymously. The government can't track and trace it. So like right now, um, out of the 21 million Bitcoins that have been, uh, that will ever be created, 19 million of them have been mined already. And I would say something like 12 to 13 million of the Bitcoins are anonymous, private, have never touched a KYC exchange. So that means the government's going to have a very difficult job tracking who owns all of that Bitcoin. So I think a sales tax, like a 5 or 10% sales tax at the register of every shop you go and spend at, that's how I see governments trying to get a higher portion of their uh, tax revenue in terms of GDP. And that's even what Naib Bekele floated as an idea for his new city uh, that he's building, uh, if that ever gets off the ground. You know, he's selling those volcano bonds to build a Bitcoin city. He proposed a sales tax uh, for everyone in that city. So that's what yeah. I would expect. Yeah. And that and for me, that's great news because I'm not a fan of tax. But mm -hmm. if it has to be a tax, I'd far prefer prefer a consumption tax over uh, an income tax or capital gain, something like that. Okay, cool. So now let's go back to the question of deflation. Um, Bitcoin is, to your point, they can only make or they can only mine 21 million. That's it. That the government can't increase the supply of the base layer. Uh, that That's a 100% certainty. So uh, I think, and correct if I'm wrong, but that would be your argument as to why we will see consumer price deflation if we were on a Bitcoin standard because the government can't print money. You can't create more of the base layer. And therefore, what we have seen throughout humanity is entrepreneurs going out there and trying to create efficiencies and sell things at a cheaper price. And therefore, naturally, with productivity gains, you're going to see prices go down further and further and further, just like we saw in the 1800s. Would that be your argument as to why we will have deflation with a Bitcoin standard? Not 100% of the time. Okay. Uh, so I think I listened to your discussion with Snyder and you guys were making the argument that um, you could see fractional reserve uh, banking on top of Bitcoin. And I believe that's what you're going to see uh, for the first, say, one or two decades as we transition towards a Bitcoin standard. Mm. So when you have these banks creating credit and fractionally reserving Bitcoin, you could see consumer price inflation during during those times on a Bitcoin standard. I think once you get to a, a point in time where hypothetically a large majority of Bitcoin is full reserved or it's very close to full reserved, I don't think we're ever going to get 100% full 
full reserved Bitcoin standard. But I think once we're at that point, or we're very close to there. I think that's where I, I expect to see like consistent, persistent consumer price deflation. And, and that's because that you've got a set number of currency units, even if there's, uh, let's say you've got the base layer, even, even at that point, you got the broad layer is let's just say 40 million when you include both. When you get yeah. to that level, they're most likely not going to create more. Yeah. So even when you combine those two, you're still at 40 million. And that's where you get that consumer price deflation because the money supply isn't expanded at all, broad money or base money. Exactly. Yeah. Can I ask you a question, Luke? Hit me, hit me. What would, if if you get, after all Bitcoin has been created, what would uh, bank lending look like under a semi-full reserve system? Very different, again. Um, So I think, I I just think, firstly, there'd be a whole lot less debt in the system because hypothetically, again, if Bitcoin, if we are close to a full reserve system, and that means if we are seeing consumer price deflation, that means people's savings are appreciating in value. So for somebody to actually go out there and take on debt, let's assume hypothetically that Bitcoin's appreciating by, let's say, 2% per year. Let's say we're getting like 5% GDP growth on a Bitcoin standard per year. I think that's very conservative. But let's say 5% of that GDP growth per year is stored into the global savings account, so Bitcoin. So let's say uh, Bitcoin gets 2% of that 5% GDP growth, and Bitcoin's appreciating by 2% per year. Um, that means if you're going to go out there and go into debt and um, you know um, invest your capital into a business venture, that means you need to be sure that your business is going to be um, appreciating or making more than that 2% that you could otherwise be gaining by just holding Bitcoin in your own self-custody. That's a risk-free rate, like a 10-year But under, under that system, who's going to make the loan? Because if you're under a full reserve system, where are you going to get the loan to fund your business? And when your currency is already appreciating, what incentive do you have to actually to create a, a loan under that, those circumstances? And yeah, what, would so the, what would the interest rate look like as well? So I think the free market's going to figure a lot of it out. I think rates will be a lot higher. Um, and I think who are you going to get the loan from? I can get peer-to-peer loans uh, right now on Bitcoin exchanges uh, where I don't actually give up the custody of my Bitcoin. Yeah. So and I think these are good answers, but I, I don't and those are good questions, but I don't I don't want to go too far down that path because that gets us more into, I think, the uh, fixed money supply versus elastic money supply. But but let, let's let's just go back for a moment, uh, Luke. So the, I understand what you're saying about deflation. Do you do you think there is almost a one to one relationship as far as the currency units created and the level of inflation. In other words, if you create one additional currency unit, are you someone that believes that we will inevitably or eventually see one unit of uh, consumer price inflation? It depends what the banks do with those reserves. Like the banks could just be sitting on those QE reserves and if they don't lend or they don't feel like lending, none of that uh inflated money supply gets into the real economy let's let's for a moment assume we're talking specifically about m2 under the current standard or a bitcoin standard where uh, the currency units circulating in the real economy again we'll just use m2 as a proxy if we increase that by one unit then we eventually will see one unit 
of consumer price inflation? Uh, C, uh, más o menos. Yeah, more, more or less. less. Okay. Yeah. Let's, let, let's go through some charts here, and I'd love to get your, your view. Please. Do you need me to share? I have the chart up right now. Oh, I just did a screen share. Yeah, just so let me see if. Uh, uh, can you see this, Luke? Yep. Okay, cool. So the first, and, and, and my position here is not Bitcoin will not be global money. It's not Bitcoin isn't valuable. It's, it's not Bitcoin is a scam. It's not the government will ban Bitcoin. It, it's, it's none of these things. So getting back to this, this chart, which is, which is really cool. We've got M2 money supply. Uh, we've got consumer price index CPI versus GDP. Now this is nominal GDP. So if you look at, uh, this is going back to 1867 to 1899. And um, what's really cool is you can just see the, the cumulative percentage increase or decrease. So we go from this basically 30 year period where you can see M2 money supply went up by 400%, almost 400%. But during that same time frame, we had 45% deflation. And what's even more staggering and, and more incredible is that we had 117% nominal GDP growth. So if you actually do the math, uh, the real GDP growth would be closer to 300%. And so if we were to assume that uh, if you increase the money supply by one unit, you will get, even if it's base layer, you will get an additional unit of inflation. We can see that is not true. That is, at least during this time frame. Now, maybe it would be true in the future, but we can show that there's been periods in US history where that is unequivocally false. And therefore, there isn't as much, it's not a 100% certainty here. Now, the argument is going to be, well, George, uh, if we would have created less money, so let's just say there would have been a, a 300% uh, increase in money supply, you would have seen even more deflation and even more benefits that would have been um, accrued by society at large. Okay. For that, let's just go ahead and go to 1930. And that's a brilliant up. chart. Like it, that's it, it really cool. Great, that? Yeah, it great. Let, let's so now, but let's look at M2 money supply right here. It grew by same thing, almost 400%. In fact, it grew less than it did before. But instead of 50% deflation, we had 74% inflation. So less money supply growth, but yet far, far, far more inflation. So I don't think you can argue definitively. Obviously, there's times in history where you could argue this, but you can't say that if we move into a Bitcoin standard, that uh, even if we keep money fixed, that this will never, ever, ever, even if you uh, don't have fractional reserve banking, even if you had a full reserve, I don't think you can argue definitively that we would see consumer price deflation because what you do and when you go to the 1960s and then you go to today's date, 
uh, what you'll see is that there isn't a real good correlation between the uh, money supply increase and actual increase in consumer prices. So this leads you to the question of what is it? If it's not this uh, monetarist view, then, then what is creating this inflation that we all agree is so insidious? What are your thoughts? Um, so, so firstly, that's a brilliant chart. I think maybe uh, the reason you saw such massive uh, deflation in the 1800s while seeing uh, an inflating money supply, um, if I had to guess, like I'm not sure, if I had to guess, maybe the reason for that was because um, in the late 1700s and 1800s, we're coming off the Industrial Revolution, the invention of railways, the steam engine, electricity, steel, um, so, and maybe we saw massive population growth in, uh, in America. So maybe that required a large, um, money supply growth. I, again, yeah. I'm not sure. Um, but that's like, that's, um, I think technology plays a very, very large role. Um, so that's my first kind of knee jerk, uh, reaction to it. I've, I've, I've obviously never seen that chart. So. Um, I'd love to, I'm going to sit down and stew on that chart when I get off this call, because I think it's brilliant. But I think once you kind of, like once the globe's globally connected, um, like in the 1800s, again, we were picking all of the low hanging fruit in terms of technological innovations. And even into like the 1950s and 60s and 70s, we were still kind of picking low hanging fruit. Um, are you guys familiar with the thesis, The Great Stagnation by Peter Cohen? Uh, no. Peter Thiel talks about this thing called the great stagnation. He asked the question, why has our physical world pretty much stagnated since 1970? Because he says, if you look back 250 years from the industrial revolution, we've literally gone from living in farms to today living in megacities. So we've had the industrial revolution, the invention of uh, railways, steam engines, we're utilizing coal as an energy source. We upgraded to oil as an energy source. We had the invention of automobiles. Um, but then kind of since 1950, 1960, 1970, everything in the physical world has stagnated. So the max speed of airplanes has stagnated since 1970. There's another brilliant curve. It's called the Henry Adams curve. And it's it's articulating a similar, similar thing. It tracks the amount of energy usage per capita uh, that we've used as a civilization since the 1700s. And we've actually used an exponentially increasing amount of energy since the 19, uh, since the 1700s, sorry, um, all the way until 1960, 1970. And then again, we stagnated. Um, so Peter Thiel and uh, um, Peter Thiel and Peter Cohen, who wrote the book, The Great Stagnation, they're kind of like, why, what's causing the stagnation in our physical world over the past 50 years? Um, so the, but, the, if that's, the, but Luke, if that's true, what you're saying that we've already picked the low lying fruit, then how does Bitcoin fix that? So I don't think Bitcoin fixes anything, uh, directly. Like I, I think, um, like how would a fixed money supply take us back to the late 1800s? Uh, so I, I think firstly, it's, uh, it will decrease the size of government not it's going to be a multi-decade process but one of the reasons that peter Thiel and uh peter cohen talk about uh for the stagnation is they say potentially it could be increased government regulation 
So the, the Department of Energy was created in 1970-something as we started using less energy. So Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining actually incentivizes the build-out of renewable energy, and it also incentivizes the usage of more energy as it's mm -hmm. gonna as it can be used to capture uh, wasted energy like flared gas and um, obviously hydropower excess. All of these wasted energy sources, even in Guatemala, people are mining Bitcoin with used cooking oils, and uh, in Mexico they're mining Bitcoin with wasted uh, pig shit. So I, I think. Bitcoin, Bitcoin incentivizes the usage of more energy. And I, I think, I hope it puts us back onto an increasing trend of in energy usage. Because like, obviously, we both agree ESG is dehuman and it's, uh, you know, Klaus Schwab's wet dream for the world where we all use less energy. I think that's anti-human. Yeah. So I think that's one. I think there's two ways. Bitcoin incentivizes smaller government, so less regulations, lets the free market and the capitalists actually go out there and do what they should be doing, innovating for society without being taxed 30 or 40%. So that's the first thing, less government. And the second thing is more energy usage. Okay. So we, we might, because the low-lying fruit was back in the late 1800s, we might not get to that level, but we would get to a level where it's far better than it is today. Now, this is interesting because let me go ahead and go through the rest of this chart. And I think it's going to dovetail very well on on what your views are. And I, I think it's going to give you a lot of food for thought. So let's go from the uh, 1930s here where we can see that they're really, if, if it's just about money supply, then you're wrong. You're wrong. Or, or and I'm not saying you, but whomever, right? There, there's got to be something else going on here or else uh, you would see, if it was just money supply, you would see the uh, inflation rate be right back down near 50%. So if we keep going, we go 1960 to let's say uh, 91, roughly, uh, we can see again, 1000% uh, money growth, but we've got an inflation rate now of 359%. Again, that delta uh, between the two is significantly different than the two timeframes you saw before. So leading us to the conclusion that maybe there's not this one-to-one -one relationship and maybe there's something else that has a bigger impact on consumer price deflation. Now we go to today and then you can see a, a dramatic uh, increase, especially uh, the last couple of years, of M2 money supply. Uh, but then you do see this 120% inflation where uh, just going back to that 1800s example, we were right about 400%, uh, but yet we were at 50% deflation. So we might have a similar delta there, but it just is really fluctuated as we go through all of these decades. Now, what I think you'll find uh, very fascinating is if we also look at real GDP growth, because right here we got nominal. And when you look at nominal, I don't, so, can't George. really come... Yeah. George, which uh, which GDP includes government spending in it? Well, all GDP. Okay. All GDP. So we're but you're 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 thinking the right way here, in my opinion. And so right here we've got one hundred percent nominal GDP growth with call it forty-five percent deflation. So I I did the math here, and that gives us a real GDP of 
So assuming that this is a, a, a decent proxy as far as how well the economy is doing, uh, we've got 300% growth in the economy between this, uh, you know, call it the end of the 1860s and 1900. Okay, now we move on uh, to that same time frame, 1930 to call it uh, 1960 or so, or maybe 1929, 1960. And this is when, if you remember, we had the uh, lower monetary growth, but much, much, much higher inflation. And you see that nominal GDP was around 400%. So if you do the math here, now all of a sudden, the real GDP growth, 200%. So we've gone from 300 down to 200. Now, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that that was when the governments were deleveraging themselves in the 1940s uh, during World War II and after World War II. Um, to a certain degree, but on net balance, they were increasing dramatically, dramatically. So here we go to, uh, I'll just give you the punchline. At this time frame, we're uh, the real GDP growth, 136%. So we've gone from 300, 200, 136. And then we go to the last time segment, which is 1991 to today's date, roughly. And we're all the way down to 94 so going back to your point that you kind of brilliantly came to, maybe just inadvertently, is when you look at real GDP growth, it's tough to, to find correlation between the money supply, deflation, any of these things. But one thing that you see an exact correlation to is government spending as a percentage of GDP. During this time frame, when it's down here under 10%, this is when you're seeing this 300% growth. Uh, so regardless what time frame is that? Sorry, George. Roughly 1870 quite... to 1900. Okay, so you had smaller government in those 30 years. and Way was that, smaller. And that was when we saw the massive deflation with increasing money supply and increasing GDP? Correct. Interesting. And then we go to 1930 to 1960, where we can see right here, you have a massive growth of government when you look at the spending as a percentage of GDP. Massive. Now, you said that in 19, uh, the 1940s, we had yeah. the big spending increase due to the World War and we came back down. Correct. But look where we came back down to. A much higher level than we were prior to the war. And this included the 1930s depression when FDR was spending money like a drunken sailor. Mm. And this goes up to a point in 1960 where federal is now at 30% of GDP, federal spending. Then we go to the next uh, time sequence where we go from, remember, 300%, 200%. Now we go down to 136%. And we can see what happened to government spending. It went up again. And then we go from 90, this point right here. And keep in mind, this chart only goes to 2018. If this chart continued, it would go like this, and then right here it would go parabolic, and it would go back up to a level almost where we were in uh, the 1940s, yet not in wartime, uh, where we are today. It, let's just call it 50% uh, government spending as a percentage of GDP. So you see a net increase, just like we've seen in all these other time frames. And just as we had a net increase in government spending as a percentage of GDP, we saw a net decrease 
in real GDP growth. So the, my, my point is there's a far lower probability or the amount of revenue, the amount of government spending is far more of an unknown than the fact that the base layer of Bitcoin cannot exceed 21 million. And if you're trying to predict deflation, you can't really do so accurately by just looking at money supply. You have to more so put your priority or your emphasis on government spending as a percentage of GDP. And that's far more of an unknown. So now I'm not saying that you wouldn't have less government spending. Maybe you would, but maybe you wouldn't. It's far less certain than just saying there's 21 million Bitcoin. Not to say don't buy Bitcoin, but to say make sure that you're buying it for the right reasons and you got your focus on the right thing. You're focused on money supply, money supply, money supply, money supply. And maybe your focus should be more on how Bitcoin can reduce government spending as a percentage of GDP. Nobody in the Bitcoin space talks about government spending as a percentage of GDP, and that's what's causing inflation or deflation. Correct. I haven't heard a Bitcoiner talk about that. I've heard lots of Bitcoin. factor. It might not be the, I, I grant you, you know, that if you had uh, a, a lower money supply, you'd probably see less, but that's not the main factor. And mm -hmm. therefore that's not what people should be uh, really focused on, right? And if you if you want to lever up your credit card to buy Bitcoin, don't do it just because there's 21 million Bitcoin. Therefore, you have to have inflation or deflation relative to goods and services. Do it because you think that there's a 100% probability that government spending is going to go right back to where it was in the late 1800s. But I don't think anyone in the Bitcoin space would argue that that is uh, as much of a certainty as Bitcoin base layer, not no one being able to increase Bitcoin base layer. I agree. I think initially you asked me as we got on the call, what probability do you give um, Bitcoin actually decreasing uh, government spending as a percentage of GDP? I think I said 60 or 70 percent. Um, That's as why I asked over... you that question first. Yeah. What, what's, your, what's your probabilities on, on that, George? I say probably the same. Okay. I, I, I think that's I, I think we would go to a sales tax. Um, I, I think that uh, interest rates would be higher. Therefore, it would incentivize governments to tax more, actually, because uh, borrowing would be more costly. Um, but how that would play out with people moving, um, I don't know. I think that's a complete unknown. Um, it's it's just it, there's a lot of fun thought experiments to really go through. I think I could give a strong argument as to why uh, government spending may be even higher, uh, or at least government revenue. But I could also give probably a much better argument for government spending being lower, but maybe not getting back down to a level that we saw in the late 1800s that would make consumer price deflation inevitable. I agree with all of that. All it is is thought experiments. I, I, I have no clue what a Bitcoin standard is going to look like, but it's fun to think about. Yeah. And if you, so just let me give you the URL if you want to noodle over this a little bit more because they've got some super cool charts on here like this one it's got uh m2 yearly growth versus inflation so this is not cumulative this is just yeah. what it did every single year 
Um, they just the charts on here are just fantastic. This is macro, long, yeah, macro trends is really cool. Oh, this is long term trends. Oh, okay. I'm not sure if I've seen this one or not. Yeah, long term trends.net. I, I, I sent it to your uh, Twitter, Luke. Legend, thank you. Can we go back to the chart just for one second? I want to look at a period of time, not this one, the oh, long term oh. trends chart. Yeah, I want to look at uh, between 1950 to 2000. Uh, because I think like there's there's obviously so I think there's more correlation during this period of time with increased money supply and increased CPI. Like they're not correlated, but the trend, they're both directionally moving in the same direction. You wanted to go to two thousand? Uh I think that's sufficient. I think that's okay. But okay. yeah, like both the line CPI and money supply growth are a little bit more correlated in the 1970s. Maybe it's just the scale or maybe it's me just trying to convince myself, but it kind of looks as if consumer price inflation loses its correlation a little bit to money supply growth around oh, 1980. I'm and sorry. So what, what I should have, and I need to write that down because this is a great point and I, I noodled over this, but what you'll find uh, Luke is it goes right back to Friedman. Uh, Friedman was a monetarist, but people think that he uh, saw that one-to-one -one relationship. But what he actually said is it's not the increase in money supply that matters. It's the increase in money supply above real GDP. Yep. That's when you get consumer price inflation. You have to look at if real GDP is humming along or projected next year, at 5% and you increase the money supply by 5%, you're most likely not going to get consumer price inflation. Zero. So th that's why that real GDP metric is so important when you're looking at money supply growth. Yeah, exactly. I, I was just going to say there could be a couple of factors why CPI stagnates there. I think 1982 was when, uh, oh, what are they called? What's the institution that changes the CPI inflation metric? It's on the tip of my tongue. Uh, oh, what is that? The the Bureau of yes. uh, of Labor Statistics, I think. Yes, yeah, they started oh, doing their handful of revisions in 1982. So that's maybe one reason why CPI looks as if it kind of stagnates around the those early 1980s. And then another question I had was, um, do I would love to see a chart of uh, asset prices included um, on this chart because maybe well, a lot of the money supply growth has been stuffed into assets and not necessarily the CPI basket. Yeah, but see, with that, I struggle because there's going to be someone that's going to be receiving the money. Mm. So it, it's, I think that gets very, very nuanced because if you've got the average Joe and Jane that is, that's, let's, let's say, put them in the high-velocity bucket. If they're buying from a private equity fund, hedge fund, um, then you're then you're not increasing the or decreasing the money supply as far as M2, but you're going from a high velocity bucket into a lower velocity bucket. But if you're going from average Joe to average Joe, then it will drive up the price. But then there's an average Joe on the other side that will take that additional purchasing power and maybe buy a, a used car or something. You see, it, it gets when you start diving down that rabbit hole, especially when you start considering how money is created today and very little of it 
uh, is created by the government. Or that's another thing that Bitcoiners get wrong, but Austrians and gold bugs do too. They say, oh, when the government prints money or the Federal Reserve prints money, that, that's, it, 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 it can increase M2, absolutely, but it might not. It, it just depends on like a thousand different factors. Uh, and again, there's not that one-to-one -one relationship because of how money is created now relative to how it was created like in the 17 and 1800s. But um, anyway, my point there is there, there's, there's a lot of nuance. And, you know, is it foreign buyers? That's another thing. If it's foreign buyers, you know, they're taking dollars that were created in the euro dollar system and they are taking those uh, dollars to uh, buy assets. And that could also increase M2. And if those foreign uh, buyers turn into sellers of, and the, the people buying are domestic, then that could uh, decrease the level of M2, because that's just strictly a measurement of the US domestic economy. That's a great point. And I agree. I think uh, if obviously, like the wealth effect as asset prices, hypothetically, if they are artificially pushed up due to increased money supply growth, some of that's going to leak out as people have their asset prices pushed up, they're going to withdraw some equity and they are going to spend it to average Joe and average Jane, who does have that higher velocity in terms of spending. So you, you would hypothetically see an increased CPI. Yeah. I mean, if you go just to the, uh, let's go 19, where are we here? 19, why don't we go 1980? Cause that's really know, when you saw that asset boom. Yeah. But here we've got. I mean, this is terrible. This is absolutely terrible. If you look at the, I mean, I can just, because I've got that, I mean, oh my gosh, this is just, so, but here, look at this. Yeah, that's this, Here, you've got 170% money supply growth and 80% inflation. <laughs> How is that possible if you're just strictly looking at the money supply when you consider the late 1800s, we had, 400% M2 and 50% deflation. And then you want to talk about an economy sucking ass. Well, I mean, do the real GDP on this. We've got 200% increase and 80% consumer product. Let me, I've got that calculator pulled up right here. I mean, this is going to be horrible. Do you want me to plug in the numbers right now, George? Or shit, where did that calculator? I had that. I have it up right now. Do you? Yeah, Josh, do let me give you the numbers here real quick. Yeah. This is going to be atrocious. Um, type in for the, the nominal GDP growth, because I know it starts at a million, so it goes up 200%. So type in two, uh, see, it goes up 200%. So type in three million. Three million phenomenal. Three million nominal. And then type in to the deflator, type in 180. Whew. Uh, but yeah, that's pretty bad. Real GDP, 1.67. Oh my God. But again, what, what time frame is that again? Sorry, George. 1980. 80, present. To, yeah. So 81 to 2000. So this goes back to the, the great stagnation thesis. The only innovation we've seen Horrible. over the past. Yeah. It looks like a great depression economy over the past 50 years. Yeah. So just to, so you understand those numbers, Luke, uh, what was it again? Josh is 1.6. 1.67. For real 1.67 that means it's a uh 67 percent increase in real gdp and that's remember that's a compounded number compounded Oof. from 80 
to 2000, 2000, 20 years. And they only had a 60% compounded increase in GDP. And, and my guess is if you did a per capita real GDP, it would be negative. It'd have to be. Wow. Wow. I didn't even, I didn't even do these numbers, uh, earlier this is just it's, it just blows your mind doesn't it but it, what's so cool about this and one thing that we can all agree on is you this paints a just i was gonna say it paints a clear picture but that's wildly understating it this paint paints the clearest picture i have ever seen as to how government spending destroys the economy mm. you see you cannot I don't think you can dis- maybe maybe there's not maybe you could dispute it some way but boy talk about a a correlation that is just solid bam bam you know decade after decade after decade after decade and it makes sense because obviously if if the government is occupying a larger uh percentage of economic output that's going to make the economy as a whole more efficient or more Less efficient excuse me the, yeah. yeah or inefficient yeah. That's, I think that's one thing the Bitcoin maximalists agree with you, George. We hate central planning, we hate governments, and we hope, we cross our fingers and toes, that a Bitcoin standard decreases uh, the federal government's spending as a percentage of GDP. Yeah, I just want the Bitcoin community, especially the, the unsophisticated investors, to know that, that we're talking about probabilities and, and, that, and to, to set up your portfolio accordingly. Uh, we are not talking about there's a 100% chance that we have consumer price deflation because base money is fixed at 21 million. And that's, as you know, that that's about the, the, the maximum level of thinking you get from not, not, not the smart dudes like Jeff and, and, and sailor and Breedlove, but the, the majority of the people that are kind of quote unquote Bitcoiners, you know, maybe on, on Twitter or something like that, that's the extent of their analysis. 21 million, you can't increase it. Therefore, we have a 100% certainty that the price of Bitcoin or, or the value of Bitcoin relative to goods and services has to go up. So why would I not max out my credit card? Why would I not mortgage my house? This is a certainty. And that's what I get on Twitter all the time. Well, George, this is just math. This is just math. <laughs> no, it's, we're not talking about math at all. <laughs> we're, we're talking about trying to decide what real human beings are going to do and tyrannical governments yeah. around this. And there is no certainty there. It's the same thing the central planners do when they're putting up their charts. They're just doing math. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, so I think that's, they're great. That's the point I'm trying to, to get through to people. It's not a Bitcoin negative argument. It, it's, it's that it's just an argument of how, uh, you know, and I think one of the main problems now that I talk to more and more Bitcoin people is it seems like the Bitcoin community attracts people who are engineers or at least have an engineering mind or in that, you know, people in the tech space. So as engineers, you can go onto your computer and you can tell your computer exactly what to do. And your computer will do exactly that. You're living within a system of rules that cannot be broken. And I think what the Bitcoin community, what attracts them is this idea that you can set up a system of rules that will somehow uh, supersede the imperfection of human beings and the world around us. 
And I think that that is <laughs> incredibly false. I think that's where uh, the Bitcoin dream kind of meets reality there. And uh, that that's, again, just what I'm trying to impress upon people. So they just hopefully make better decisions, uh, but then maybe become even more of an advocate of Bitcoin, not because it's a fixed money supply, but because it reduces the size of government. And at the end, mm. that's what's most important. Exactly. I couldn't agree more, George. Um, I think like, obviously, that's why I've gravitated so heavily towards Mark's and yourself's content on YouTube. You always talk about probabilities. What's the probability? Let's do a, a, a what is it? A cost benefit analysis. Um, mm. And I, I agree. I think most Bitcoiners on Twitter, um, they I, I think another point as well, a little bit of a side tangent. I, I don't think a lot of Bitcoiners are leveraging credit cards to buy more Bitcoin because we 100% think the money supply is going to go up and that means consumer prices have to go up and that means Bitcoin has to go up in price. I think there's another variable in there and I think that could be uh, the adoption curve. So right now, the adoption of Bitcoin around the world is like, it's probably 0.1% when you actually measure how many people in the world are actually storing a majority of their savings in Bitcoin. So I think a lot of Bitcoiners are making the bet that hypothetically, if we do get something close to a Bitcoin standard in the future, it makes a little bit more sense to not leverage up. I'm not a fan of leverage, but I'm just trying to represent their views. Um, maybe that's a reason they're leveraging up. It's not just solely money printer has to go burr because governments are bankrupt. And that means inflation has to go up. Um, I, I think that's possibly another variable. We're so early in its adoption that buying some when it's so young in its adoption, um, that could be why a lot of Bitcoiners are leveraging the farm. Yeah. And see, that's 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 a great point. And so I'm because that would be an argument that it's just math and you've got a limited supply. You've got the halvings and all these things. Therefore, if demand goes up, the price of it, of Bitcoin has to go up. Um, but see that that's a good argument, but that's a different argument than the one I'm making because I'm taking it to the next step saying, okay, what if Bitcoin now is already money and, exactly. and we're not measuring it in terms of dollars, we're just measuring it in terms of goods and services because everything is priced in Bitcoin, uh, including tax revenue and whatnot. So it, it is a different, uh, it is a different stage in the in the process that I'm, I'm trying to analyze exactly and i think as long as you articulate that like you know like, like i tried to say earlier i believe that you're going to see fractional reserve banking on bitcoin for a couple of decades before you potentially might get close to a full reserve kind of banking style on bitcoin hypothetically talking about different time frames and different uh there's obviously different scenarios i think that'll I think that would be what, what would you say is the greatest benefit of having a fixed money supply? People can store their time and their energy in something that can't be debased. So they know, well, they, they have a, a better idea of what their savings are going to be in the future. So they can uh, lower their time preference as Saifedean calls it. And um, when, when civilization is incentivized to save, they're incentivized to think for the future. We're no longer just being pushed into debt to buy these plastic goods from China. Um, everybody has a high time preference and uh, they, you know, they're addicted to social media where whatever gets the most likes um, is, is trending and hot. I think 
it's, it's hard to say all of that's due to us being on a fiat standard, but I think it certainly contributes. So I think- Yeah, because again, that, that I understand your, your view, but that assumes that we get deflation with a fixed money supply, which if we get enough government, uh, I think it's safe to assume that we might not uh, get deflation even with a, a fixed money supply. But I, my, my question there was, let's just assume that this is true, that if we have a fixed uh, money supply, that the benefits will accrue to the general population um, in, in the form of deflation. And this is just a 100% guarantee. If that's the benefit of having a fixed money supply, why would we not want a money supply that decreases annually? Wouldn't we just get even more of a benefit? So if the money supply is decreasing, does that mean uh, price of goods and services is going up every year? No. So let's just say you got 21 bit, uh, million Bitcoin and that's the yep. maximum there's ever going to be. Okay. Yep. And, and the reason that's good is because it's going to create consumer price deflation which is going to benefit society and all the reasons that you just mentioned and all the reasons that the Bitcoin standard gentleman articulates that Jeff Booth, a sailor, et cetera. And this is in, in the, in the society's reaping these rewards as an, as a, as a result of consumer price deflation, which is a result of having a fixed money supply. So if this is true, why wouldn't we, once we get to 21 million, the next year, why wouldn't we start decreasing the money supply? Why don't we, so we go from 21 million and then let's say five years later, it's 20 and five mm -hmm. years later, it's 19 and it keeps going down and down and down because if a fixed, if, if you're looking at the Delta between a fixed money supply and a growing money supply and saying uh, a fixed money supply is in, is, you know, infinitely better uh, because it's going to produce this deflation, but there's a one-to-one -one relationship. If we had even more deflation, mm. that would be even better. And the best way to do that is to have a money supply that actually decreases, not stays the same. I understand your argument now. Um, so, so what would why why would we not want a decreasing money supply? I suppose a Snyder um, would say that it wouldn't incentivize it would incentivize hoarding people would just sit on their savings if it's but appreciating. You, but you know where I'm going with that because yeah. you that argument with a fixed money supply. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's a trick question. It's, it's purposely <laughs> a trick question. It's a good one. Nearly got through me. <laughs> All right, man. We've been on our, on an hour, excuse me. Uh, great talking to you. That was, a, that was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. And that is all I've got time for you guys today. Let me know down in the comments below who you think won that little debate or friendly discussion, I should say, between George, myself, and Josh. Do you think the Bitcoiners are missing something when we're talking about money printing and inflation? And what do you think banking could look like on a Bitcoin standard? Let me know in the comments down below. And if you did enjoy this video, feel free to slap a like on the video and subscribe to the channel so you're notified for the upcoming interviews we have coming up because just next week, we're going to be talking to Josh once again, who was on this uh, little three-way discussion and debate with George. He actually joined me in El Salvador last week for an in-person debate about all of the topics we discussed in today's RIP with George. So stay tuned for that. We're also going to be talking with Alex Svetsky about his recent article, Fire, 
teleportation and Bitcoin. We're also going to be discussing what the Kardashev scale is and the great filter. And I also have another interview coming up with Rob Hamilton, where we're going to be talking about technological stagnation and why the world of bits has seen so much rapid innovation over the past 50 years. Meanwhile, the world of atoms in our physical world has been stagnating. So if any of that sounds interesting, make sure you subscribe to the channel so you're notified for when those interviews drop. And final little reminder, guys, grab yourself $10 off a foundation passport. If you want a hardware wallet, you can use the link in the description uh, to check out one of those. You can also get 10% off your Bitcoin Miami 2023 tickets if you use the promo code and the link in the description of today's show. And if you need any help setting up a hardware wallet like a foundation or from any technical issues that you may be having, make sure you check out Coinbase Connect. Everything is linked below. And without further ado, I hope you guys have a good day and I'll see you on the next video.